Good morning, Evanston Bible Fellowship. My name is Chipper Flanagan. I am at City Church in Gainesville, Florida, home of the University of Florida. I used to be part of this congregation a few years back, and then you, you made us leave. You sent us out to plant this church. We're just about to have a three-year anniversary. We're the third church that EBF has been a part of as far as planting. If you're wondering what my thoughts are in church planting right now, keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep sending people. Keep raising up leaders and sending them out. It's a sacrifice, but it's worth it. God is using church plants to build his kingdom. People are coming to know Jesus because of church planting. It's hard, but it's completely worth it. I am married to Kristen, and we have one daughter named Molly. She is 16 months old, and Molly got to go to Evanston Hospital this morning at about 4.30 a.m., so... It's a bit of a difficult morning for us. She hit her head really hard uh, late last night, and then a few hours later, she started throwing up, and that's not a good sign. So uh, we took her there. She's back. They let her go from the hospital. She's resting um, at the home of Matt and Laura Wright right now. They've been very gracious to us and helped us out um, in the midst of all of that. So that's why my wife isn't here, which is a bummer, uh, but that's okay. You know what I'm realizing, too? Uh, the wonderful people that uh, loaned us their pack-and-play crib for this weekend. Uh, we need to talk about that um, <laughs> at some point. So you can, you can find me after the service and we'll work that out. This is the last week that uh, your lead, lead pastor, Jason Lancaster, is on sabbatical. Um, so I'm excited that he's coming back. I hope that it's been a refreshing time for him. Some of you may have never even heard him preach, never even seen him if you've come into the life of this church in the past few months. So I hope you're excited. Uh, I hope you're not coveting his return, though, because if you are, it's going to be an uncomfortable morning for you. So let me pray for us as we continue with our time this morning. Father, we depend on your Holy Spirit to work in us, to illuminate your text. There's no way that we can hear from your word without your spirit, and so we pray for it. We expect it this morning. We pray that we would not just listen, but that we would hear and we would be transformed by your word. It has that kind of power, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dealing honestly with covetousness is very much an uphill climb, and here are three of the most significant challenges when we deal with covetousness. First of all, we live, we all live in the social environment that is somewhat okay with covetousness. That is, with strongly desiring and even pursuing things, usually things that belong to other people. You know, most people would say that they're anti-murder and anti-stealing, and they're kind of against lying. You know, issues addressed in the commandments you've just dealt with in the last few weeks. But coveting is more of an acceptable sin, I would argue. There is evidence galore for this, for example, on social media. Open up your Facebook page or whatever pages you look at, and you'll probably find someone posting picture after picture of that, that house that they have to have, that dream condo. And honestly, you may see those pictures and find yourself wanting the same house. And you'll find other people writing posts about being married, maybe to a particular celebrity, sometimes even people who are already married. Notice that you don't see people on social media posting 
the blueprint of a bank they're going to go out and steal from, or pictures of a Slurpee that they just stole from 7-Eleven. Covetousness, I think, is more tolerable because it often masquerades as this kind of gritty determination or honest self-expression, both of which are celebrated in our day. Second, covetousness is very hard to see. For example, when exactly does gritty determination cross the line and become covetousness? It's not always easy to tell. You have to, you have to do some probing. And covetousness is a professional at hiding itself. Generally, you can see things like murder and stealing, but as you've heard last week, not always, because sometimes those things can very much be in your heart. But covetousness in particular tends to retreat to the recesses of our hearts. And third, there's always someone who seems to be more covetous than myself or than us. There's always someone who's a lot worse off than we are. Greed, which is often a form of covetousness, is a perfect case study. Maybe you worry about your finances or your retirement portfolio more than you ought to, but it's nothing like your coworker who never sees his kids because he works so many hours trying to get that big bonus. And so when we talk about covetousness or when we talk about greed, it's tempting to think, yeah, the Johnsons really need to hear this this morning. I'm glad they're here. It's easy to think that without investigating our own hearts. And so in the face of these three challenges, my prayer this morning is that Scripture would expose the covetousness in our hearts that we might be repulsed by it and by God's grace rooted out of our lives. That's my prayer for us this morning. Even if we don't think that we wrestle with covetousness at all, let's give this an honest shake, all of us, myself, included this morning, and ask the Lord for soft hearts and for ears to hear. To consider covetousness this morning, we'll look at three questions. First, what is the root of covetousness? Secondly, what is the fuel for killing covetousness? And third, what is the impact of killing covetousness? The root, what is the fuel for killing it, and what is the impact? And let's jump right in and consider the first Question, what is the root of covetousness? In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, we read that we are not to covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. There it is, the tenth commandment. Who here can't sleep at night because you're thinking, wow, my neighbor's donkey, gotta have it? Probably not many of you. But here's the thing. This doesn't mean that we should write off the Ten Commandments as a non-issue. And why is that? It's because the root of covetousness is not really about the specific stuff that we desire. It's about the heart behind the desire for this stuff. It's a deeply entrenched belief issue. And that helps us understand why Jesus responded the way he did to a man who asked Jesus to arbitrate an inheritance dispute. Look at Luke chapter 12. I'm kind of 
switching things up with you a little bit. We'll, we'll mainly be in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12 this morning, so I would encourage you to, to turn there if you have a Bible or look at it. If you have a phone, Luke chapter 12. And in this chapter, we find Jesus at the height of his public teaching ministry. At the beginning of the chapter, we see that crowds of people, crowds of people have, have gathered to hear Jesus teach a somewhat chaotic crowd that probably numbered in the thousands. And then in Luke chapter 12, in verse 13, we read that someone in the crowd asked Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And, and he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Clearly this man believed that his brother was cheating him out of some inheritance money, so he wanted Jesus to step in and make things right. This, of course, is the ultimate tattletale. Complaining to your mom because your sister stole from the cookie jar is one thing. Complaining to Jesus, the Son of God, is a completely another thing. In this man's defense, rabbis in Jesus' day sometimes arbitrated legal disputes because they were tasked with interpreting Old Testament regulations. And in this man's mind, the man in the crowd, Jesus was probably just another respected rabbi. However, the timing of this man's request is certainly strange. He was asking about his inheritance while a crowd of people was gathering to hear Jesus teach. This is not something you would normally expect to be asked in this environment, and it's likely an indicator of just how much this inheritance issue had consumed this man's thoughts. In Jesus' response to the man, in verses 14 and 15, we see that he took a pass on dealing with the inheritance issue because he was far more interested in exposing the covetousness in this man's heart. Jesus responded, he said, Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He's, he's responding to the man, but also kind of generally responding to the crowd that had gathered. In other words, sir, the details of your family's inheritance arrangement aren't the focus of my ministry. Let's talk about what's going on in your heart. The inheritance wasn't the real issue. As Jesus wisely discerned, the real issue was the man's overpowering desire for something other than God. The real issue was covetousness. The man framed his question as kind of this respectable concern for justice. But at the end of the day, his request was a symptom of a heart problem. Jesus discerned that the man was in love with the inheritance that he didn't yet have. According to the man in the crowd, the good life at the University of Florida, if you're a freshman, if you're coming into the university, everyone takes a course called What is the Good Life? And you spend a semester investigating that question. 
I don't think it's very popular. But you, you investigate this question, and according to this man in the crowd, the, the good life was about financial security, comfortable living. The good life was about getting a slice of his brother's inheritance pie. The man was trusting in those things for satisfaction and joy rather than trusting in the Lord. But Jesus didn't just generically warn the man in the crowd about covetousness. He pointed out two major consequences of covetousness. First, as Jesus pointed out in verse 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Beware. Covetousness and greed are knocking on your door, but do not be deceived. Your possessions will not bring you the life that they promise. They will not satisfy you like you think they will satisfy you. When it comes to desiring things that satisfy us, our judgment is flawed, to say the least. And Jesus knows this, and he warns the man, and he warns the crown. But secondly, and even more seriously, covetous hearts can separate us eternally from God. They can separate us eternally from God. That's what Jesus was getting at in the parable he told in verses 15 through 21. This man amassed a ton of wealth. His his land was abundant. The crops were plentiful. And by the way, there's nothing uh, inherently wrong with his wealth. You know, the Lord may well have blessed him with these possessions. The problem is that the wealth consumed this man. He became obsessed. He wanted more and more, and he even built bigger barns to store all of this stuff. And not only that, he ended up trusting in his wealth for years and years of ease and merriment. And God didn't stand in his way. But in the end, this man's soul was as the text says, it was required of him. That is, he faced eternal judgment because he wanted his stuff more than God. The Lord essentially gave him the desires of his heart, but they separated the man from the only one who eternally satisfies, and ultimately the man was left with nothing. He laid up his treasure in the wrong place, and he forfeited his relationship with God. Covetous hearts are like, like four-year-olds at a steak restaurant. I've been here before, so I'm not criticizing four-year-olds. This was me. Instead of trusting the wisdom of our parents to order for us, we're always hopelessly captured by that little Debbie cupcake we know is buried somewhere in our mom's purse. We whine and we whine and eventually at least in some cases, our mom gives it to us. But doesn't really satisfy us. At least it might taste sweet, but there's no nutritional value. That would be a bit of a controversial statement, kind of where I'm from in the South, although Gainesville, a bit of an exception. It's kind of like a, a Southern Evanston in some ways. But here I know there's no controversy. I mean, those things, they have so many GMOs, they would probably walk out the door if they could. No nutritional value. We think it's satisfying, but it doesn't. And even worse, we miss out on the steak. Eventually, we leave the restaurant, 
and we've missed our chance. And so it is with covetousness and our foolish judgment. What we do is we long for things that won't deliver on their promises and simultaneously we miss out on what will actually satisfy us. And by the way, this is so helpful. All of this helps us understand why God the Father would command His people to do certain things and to not do other things. Certainly part of the reason was to help His people rightly worship Him and glorify His name above all others. That was part of it. But God also crafted the commandments and and other regulations so that in following His commandments and regulations, His people would flourish. The Ten Commandments weren't some sort of arbitrary list. God wasn't sitting up in heaven saying, you know, yeah, at the end of the day, adultery is harmless and exciting, but I'm going to go ahead and outlaw that anyway. That's absolutely not the case. In His infinite wisdom and goodness, God was warning us against poisonous things that look fantastic on the outside. But here's the rub. For all you, I guess, was that British... If covetousness is so foolish and ultimately poisonous, why did God have to warn the Israelites against covetousness? Why did Jesus have to warn the man in the crowd? What's going on in our hearts? And here's the problem. Every human being has this tendency to believe that God is not enough for us and will not provide for all of our needs. We all wrestle with that tendency. It started with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they desired something that God had made off limits, and it still affects us all today. We're afraid that we might miss out on something, and so we hedge our bets. We hedge our bets. We desire people and things that we don't yet have and things that belong to others, and we pursue them with all of our might. And so we see the root of covetousness, unbelief and fear, unbelief and fear. And so we address that unbelief and and fear by taking matters into our own hands rather than trusting in the Lord. Afraid an unwise decision at work might cost us that promotion that we so desperately crave. Why not disregard the ninth commandment and tell a small lie to protect our reputation? In a difficult marriage and afraid we might have married the wrong spouse, why not disregard the seventh commandment and run off with our neighbor's spouse so that we can enjoy the marital bliss we always dreamed we would have? Kids, not seeing things the same way as your parents and afraid you're missing out on all the fun the other kids are having, why not disregard the fifth commandment and experiment with your rebellious side so you can finally get to living? In every case, we're obsessing over things we don't have that we think we need to make us happy. We're devoting ourselves to basically counterfeit gods because we're afraid the true God has dropped the ball. It's no wonder then that the Apostle Paul equates covetousness with idolatry in two of his letters in Ephesians 5 and Colossians chapter 3. Since covetousness is such, as you can see, a very dangerous heart problem, it's crucial that we deal honestly with it 
so that we can get rid of it. But as we discussed earlier, covetousness is particularly hard to see in our own lives. So let me help you see it so then we can move on and deal with it. Here are three strategies for seeing covetousness. First, I'm getting this primarily from an author named Melissa Kruger. She recommends considering the areas where you tend to compare yourself with others. When to find covetousness, consider the areas where you tend to compare yourself with others. Tend to compare your spouse to someone else's spouse. Covetousness is probably right around the corner. Second strategy, consider where your thoughts tend to drift when your mind is idling. When your mind is idling. Idle thoughts tend to be some of our most honest thoughts. And here's the third strategy. Let others speak into your life. Let others speak into your life. Let them probe. Because here's the saying. I can't see my biggest flaws. And you can't see your biggest flaws. We cannot see our biggest flaws. In fact, as we just read, Jesus had to show the man in the crowd the covetousness in his heart. Because why? He couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. And by the way, this is yet another critical reason that we see in Scripture to live in community with fellow Christians if we, if we isolate ourselves from other Christians. And I, I understand that there's, there's compelling reasons sometimes to consider doing this life is, is busy and we get tired and community can be messy. But if we isolate ourselves from other Christians, no one will check our blind spots and major areas of sin will fester. That's the danger of, of living outside of Christian community. So there you have it, three strategies. Consider where you tend to compare yourself to others. Consider where your thoughts drift and let others speak into your life. Say we practice these three strategies and find some covetousness in our hearts. In order to proceed, we need to understand how to deal with it. And that brings us to the second question we are considering this morning. What is the fuel for killing covetousness? What's the fuel for killing covetousness? Let's take another look at Luke chapter 12. After Jesus' interaction with this man in the crowd, he turned to his disciples for a, a debrief conversation about what they had just witnessed. In verse 22, Jesus told his disciples, Hey guys, in case you're wondering how to process the implications of this interaction I just had with the man in the crowd, let me give you a hint. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. And he followed this up in verse 29 with a command that they should not worry. And then again an exhortation in verse 32 that they should fear not. Jesus is demonstrating, he's eliminating all doubt. Fear and unbelief clearly are the foundation of covetousness. Disciples, want want to guard yourself from the kind of covetousness you just witnessed? Then watch out for fear and unbelief, the root of covetous hearts. Instead, trust in the Lord, the one who, as we see in verses 22 through 30, feeds the ravens and clothes the lilies and the grass. 
If the birds and the flowers get exactly what they need, will he not also provide for you? So instead of living in fear and and building a kingdom for yourself out of your own covetous desires, rest in the Lord. But Jesus is telling his disciples, surrender to his dominion over all things. Trust in his wisdom. Seek his kingdom. But Chipper, how do we actually do that? How do we actually do that? It's, it's, it's one thing to understand intellectually that we should be trusting in the Lord, but another thing entirely to actually do it. How do we grow? How do we actually kill covetousness in our lives? It's a great question. I'm so glad that you asked. Here's your two-part answer. Part one. Spiritual growth is impossible apart from God. It's impossible apart from God. So we can't kill covetousness without the powerful work of the Spirit of God in our lives. A glorious benefit of claiming Christ crucified for us. We cannot kill covetousness unless the Spirit of God is at work. So if you are here this morning and you're investigating Christianity, maybe you're not yet following Jesus, we're so glad you're here. And what it's important to tell you that this, this Ten Commandments series that we've been going through ultimately points to Jesus. It ultimately points to Jesus, the perfect Son of God who never coveted anything, even though He lived on this earth just like us, the perfect Son of God who eventually died on the cross, crucified. He, he paid the penalty for our sin and we, that we deserve to pay so, so that those who repent of the rebellion against God and, and turn to Jesus might be saved and reconciled to God. So please take all of your sins, take all of your covetousness and turn to Jesus, the one who gives rest for our souls. There's no salvation to be found in simply trying to be a better person and, and, and to follow the rules as best we can. It will never work. It will always fall short. And then those same rules will end up indicting us before God. John, a disciple of Jesus, would eventually write this. He says, guys, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And that's what we preach here at EBF. It is at least the last time I checked. Christ crucified for us that we might receive the Spirit who gives life, not man trying his hardest to be less covetous so he can make it back to God. May that never be preached here. That's part one of the answer. And here's part two. Once we've turned to Jesus, how do we grow? Once we've turned to Jesus, how do we grow? Because until we die or until Christ returns, we still wrestle with our sin, though we are saved from it. We still wrestle with our sin, though we are saved from it. That, that's the Christian experience, wrestling with sin with the expectation for growth. That's how Christians live. Check out verses 32 through 35, 4. Excuse me. Fear not, little flock. This is Jesus again to his disciples. For it is your father's 
good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Focus on verse 34. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Provide for yourself treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Invest in heavenly treasure. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. EBF, our hearts follow after the things we treasure. They follow after the things we treasure. Our hearts align themselves with the things that we're invested in. If you invest all of your money in shares of Apple, you're going to have quite the affinity for Apple and its corporate performance. You'll be checking Apple's stock value every day when you get into work. Your heart is where your treasure is. If you're a huge fan of an athletic team, you will watch the games, you'll check the scores, you'll probably be happy when they win and disappointed when they lose. Your heart is where your treasure is. And so it follows that hearts that are increasingly less covetous are the fruit of laying up for ourselves treasure in heaven. And why is that? And here's why. Because they are hearts falling in love with new heavenly treasure. They are hearts that are falling in love with new heavenly treasure. And they are hearts falling out of love with the things of this world. The hymn, Turn Your Eyes to Jesus, or written, I guess, about a hundred years ago. I think 1922 captured this, captures this so well. It says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful grace. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. The Lord is the ultimate heavenly treasure. And as we invest in this treasure, as as we behold His wonderful face, what happens is that the things of this earth start to fade away. They grow strangely dim. And here's how we invest in heavenly treasure. We put our hope in the Lord, the ultimate heavenly treasure, by walking with Him in obedience. We invest by walking in the Lord, walking with the Lord in obedience. And this looks like so, so many different things. We, Of course, we spend our time and, and energy on learning more about Him through His Word and communicating with Him through prayer, memorizing God's Word, memorizing Scripture, telling others about the good news of the Gospel, encouraging one another like we're doing now when we gather on Sunday morning. We immerse ourselves in the pool of faithful obedience to the Lord by the grace of God. And what happens is this. When we invest in such heavenly treasure, our affections for that treasure begin to emerge. The more we invest, the more our affections grow for that treasure because we're invested in the outcome of our invested. We're interested in our investments. 
And now we see, by the way, why killing covetousness depends on putting our treasure in the right place. When, when God and the hope held out for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ are our ultimate treasures, those treasures will capture our affections. Our confidence will be in those treasures, not in the earthly things we thought we needed, the things we coveted. We're no longer anxious about our earthly provisions because we're in love with God, our Heavenly Father, who desires to give us such good gifts and one day will usher us into this new city where the splendor will be so marvelous you can't even compare anything in this world to it. It'll be that fantastic. It's like a hundred of your favorite things times infinity. People think of heaven as this place where you're kind of, you know, we know you're going to get your own cloud. We're certain of that. You'll have your own cloud, and you, there's harps up there. Not sure if we'll play them, but they'll be up there too. That's not the biblical picture of heaven. Just a much more remarkable, outstanding, fantastic version of this world. A perfect version of this world. And that's what is held out for those who are in love with God and following Him. When we have that kind of hope, the things of this world begin to fade away. We're no longer anxious about missing out on the, on the things this world has to offer because we know that we're going to get something that makes all these things seem dim in comparison. So let me review this heavenly and investment progression with you one more time because it's complicated a little bit. But it's important. Step one, by faith, we put our treasure in heaven as we walk with God in obedience. So he says, live like this. And we say, okay, we're going to try living like this. We're going to step out in faith and walk with you in obedience. And step two is this, our affections over time for our heavenly treasure grow. They follow after the investment. And step three, our affections for worldly things dissipate and thus we're less anxious and fearful about worldly things because they're less valuable in our eyes. And step four, because our treasure is in heaven, we no longer need to commandeer resources to obtain things we covet or to protect worldly treasures. The bonds of covetousness begin to break. And please note, this is a bit of an aside, but it's so important. This, this has ministered to me often, maybe more than anything, in the last three years. Tucked into this progression that I just described is an important yet often overlooked distinctive of the Christian faith. And it's this, Christian obedience is not feelings-based. Christian obedience is not feelings-based. Nowhere in Scripture do we have evidence for sitting on our cabooses until you feel certain things about God and then walk with Him in obedience. That's not what we see in Scripture. It actually paints exactly the opposite picture. It says, invest in what you know is true, what, what God has revealed to you, Invest in eternal, supremely valuable treasure, even if you don't feel like it. And the feelings, the affections, will follow. They will follow. 
often gradually, sometimes painstakingly, but they will follow. In other words, don't wait around for the feelings. They tend to follow the obedience investment. The more you invest, the more your affections grow. In EBF, we see this pattern all around us. You know, if, if you ask most people in this room, do you like ballroom dancing? You'd probably get probably a lot of apathetic shrugs or indifferent looks. Ballroom dancing, fine. You don't have a problem with it. But some people in this room would say that they love it. And why is that? Well, because they invested in it. They took lessons, they practiced, they got good at it, and eventually they participated in organized ballroom dancing. And their love for ballroom dancing grew over time. They, they most likely didn't just wake up one day with this love for ballroom dancing. There is an investment, and then their affections followed. And those of you who have been married for significant amounts of time know that you generally love your spouse the most when you invest in or treasure your spouse the most. It's a crucial principle for healthy marriages. And conversely, marriages tend to head south in a real hurry when we stop serving and merely reflect on how we feel and whether or not our needs are being met. When we approach our marriages like that, they tend to go south. Church, I'm, this is... This is a revolutionary, life-changing, distinctive of the Christian faith that we will do well to consider more in depth, hopefully in your ethos communities this week. First the obedience, then the affections. We step out in faith, and the affections follow. So we've considered the root of covetousness, and we've seen how to kill it. And now we come to the third question we're considering this morning, very briefly, what is the impact of killing covetousness? What's the impact of killing covetousness? Killing covetousness with faithful obedience leads to godly contentment. We've come to know Christ, and we're trusting in God we know will satisfy us no matter what happens in this life. And you know what? People who are truly content will live generously. People who are truly content will live generously. And we're generous because, again, increasingly our hope is not in the things of this world. So it frees us to give. It frees us to invest in others. We'll live generously because we're content in Christ. And what that means is that we'll prioritize the well-being of other people our family members, our neighbors, our church community, and so forth, will prioritize them above our own interests. Covetousness is the enemy of loving our neighbors well because covetous hearts are focused on the self and will even abuse other people to get what they want. Covetous hearts abuse the other. Generous hearts love the other. And so the more we love others in general, excuse me, the more we love others, by the way, and this is the amazing thing about generosity, the more generous we are, the more generous we will continue to be. Generosity feeds itself. Because what we're doing when we're generous is we're continuing to invest in eternal treasure. And more and more affections follow, and that helps us be even more generous. And my prayer is that EBF would be a content and generous church. What life 
there is to be found in such living. And what a testimony of God's glory and grace that would be to the Evanston community if all of us were living content and generous lives. So let's invest in heavenly treasure. Let's, let's walk with God in obedience. Let's commune with him as much as we can and in, invite people into our lives to hold us accountable and spur us on in the Lord. And more experienced Christians, especially some of the older men and women in this church that have some, some more perspective on life, mentor us young people. Whatever you call them here. I, I think it's whippersnappers in the south, but I doubt that's what it is in Evanston. People with more experience, who have more perspective, who, who've seen it all in some ways, mentor people like myself and other people in this congregation. Spend time with us and point us toward the value of heavenly investments. You've had a little bit more time to see earthly investments not go so well, so share those stories with us. And let me close with a word of encouragement. This is so good. As as we invest in heavenly treasures that we might kill covetousness, at times, this is a serious bummer, at times we're still going to come up short. At times we're still going to come up short. But in those moments... Remember the supreme example of God's generosity. Christ crucified for us. Our own relationship with God is built on Christ's perfection, not our own. Praise be to God for that reality. And that grace allows us to dust ourselves off and keep walking when we come up short. It allows us to repent and to re-engage in killing covetousness rather than wallowing in guilt What grace that is, what wonderful grace. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we understand here that covetousness is is a left turn. It's a fork in a row that will not satisfy us the way we think it will. And Lord, we do pray, we, we, we need you to help us understand that. And even more, the only reason we're going to be able to walk in obedience at all is, is by your grace. And so I pray that you would empower us this morning for faithful obedience, Father, by your spirits, that we might be a content and generous people, loving others well, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.